a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now on KSL Plus. A controversial school voucher bill is expected to get a new set of eyes. Utah's 45-day legislative session. At the Capitol, a series of divisive bills addressing sex Kicked off the way last year's session ended. When the governor doesn't stand for trans youth, what do we do? With some controversy. Hundreds of bills later, changes are coming. And this budget is probably the largest budget in the history of the state, and I think it's the best budget. I'm Matt Rascone here at the Utah State Capitol, and this week, on the last week of the session, I talked to KSL News Radio reporter Lindsay Ertz, who has been covering it all. We talk about some of the things lawmakers have done, other bills that are still on the table, and the impact all of it could have on you. Okay, so we've been, we're a few weeks in. We have one week left at the time we're recording this. This is on Monday. Uh, session ends on Friday. How do you describe this session so far? <laughs> I'm going to use the word crazy. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm covering it and I have been working at a breakneck pace. Uh, maybe all legislative sessions feel crazy because they're 45 days. Right. But this one came out the gate with some really controversial bills. Um, it seems like every week we have a new controversial bill. And some of those controversial bills have taken a lot of the limelight from some of the other things. I mean, I think there's some criticisms out there that we're not doing enough with water with the Great Salt Lake. Because a lot of times we in the media can't cover those because we're covering some of the other bills that are really controversial and questionable that people kind of start chatting about and need to have um, some information about in order to know what they actually do. So let's start at the beginning then, where it right, like you said, right out of the gate, uh, HB 215. I mean, people support giving teachers pay raises, but this one did something else, too. Yeah, it also uh, provided for a school scholarship program, which critics call school vouchers. Um, so what it does is allow people to apply for some state money, some uh money that goes towards schools to in order to send their kids to a school of their choice. Now, the argument there on its face value is... 
this is great. We give choices in education, right? That's what a lot of people want. If you want to homeschool your kid, great. If you want to micro school your kid, great. If you want to send them public school or private school, great. But the issue that people, a lot of people took was with the fact that we were taking public state money and allowing it to filter towards private schools. Private schools in Utah don't have oversight from the state Mm -hmm. as far as academics, testing, um, end of the year things. Now, there were some provisions put in the bill, so there could be a portfolio of sorts, so kids would have to sort of report their work at the end of this. But that was the philosophical issue that a lot of people took with this bill on its face value, was just this concept of giving state tax dollars that would otherwise go to public education and allowing it to flow towards private schools. If we fund public schools with public money, instead of putting public money into private schools, it would help my students afford things like books state tests and have a better overall experience. And uh, I think supporters of this would say, hey, this was giving students more opportunities, right? Choice uh, other than public school. Yeah. And um, I think the bill was even titled opportunity in education, right? Mm -hmm. So, and that was one of the criticisms of it at the same time, right? Is you can call it whatever you want, but it's still a voucher program is what some would argue, right? But on the flip side of that, you're right. It does allow money to flow towards where parents need choices in education, right? If your kid is not thriving in public school, you can pull them out right now, but this just allows you to have some of that money follow your child if you want to apply for this scholarship and uh, give it to some of their other educational needs. I think the effect on public education is going to be close to nil. It won't even be felt by almost all public education, but what will be felt is that salary increase and the additional support that we anticipate giving to public education this year. Now, the other thing I'll say about this bill is it put the two issues together in one bill, and that was a criticism of it as well, was that teacher salaries were also tied in with this school choice program. So if you wanted to vote as a lawmaker uh, for teacher salaries, you also had to support Mm. the school voucher program. And that Mm. was the issue for some people. Um, I think politically it allowed... Some lawmakers to have cover because they're like, hey, I'm supporting teacher raises here. This is what you want. Uh, But also we heard the sponsor say, you know, this is what the governor had been calling for. This is what um, education groups had been calling for, support teachers, and then we'll see if we can support school choice. And essentially he said, let's let them prove it. Let's hold their feet to the fire and and see if they do indeed support this. But I think tying the two issues together was something that rubbed people the wrong way. We are frustrated with the rush passing of HB 215 and the way that public school teacher salaries are tied to private parent choice. We believe that those are two separate issues and they should be treated as such. I think the concern amongst pub- public education is that these types of programs do divert kids or students from public education. But we've got other states that have implemented similar school choice programs, and that's not what we're seeing. So ultimately, it passes. The governor signs it. Um, And then we have another bill that also impacts children right at the beginning. uh, Senate Bill 16 from Senator Kennedy uh, talking about sex characteristic surgical procedures. Yeah. So this bill would prohibit transgender minors from uh, gender related surgeries. No minor, especially one in emotional pain, is really old enough, mature enough or experienced enough to understand the lifelong implications of these procedures. 
What I can tell you is that gender-affirming care is as equally life-saving and as important as treatment for asthma, autism, type 1 diabetes, or heart conditions. It is evidence-based, widely recommended care that has been developed to help transgender people. So these are surgeries that uh, uh, supposedly change the gender of a, uh, a minor. And this is obviously a very controversial issue when it comes to transgender youth. Um, you know, the sponsor continually argued that the science was just not there on these surgeries. And he said multiple times that he didn't want to let uh, social issues outpace the science on this. And so uh, what they did was ban surgeries for minors and then put a moratorium on hormone blockers and cross-sex hormones. So that, that means that any transgender youth, as soon as this bill was signed by the governor, were not allowed to start these uh, transition hormones and they were not allowed to have surgeries at that point forward. Now, it did hold harmless anybody who was currently taking hormones. So no one had to stop treatment. No minors had to stop treatment um, if they, once this bill was signed. So that was a, a key piece to say, we're not going to just yank your treatment out from under you, but we're going to stop these treatments going forward. Now, obviously there are passionate issues on both sides of this. Um, Again, lawmakers argued a lot of the time that there was not science on this, that we needed to put a pause on these surgeries on minors until the science could be fleshed out a little bit more. On the other side of that, you just had a transgender community who was feeling very targeted. They were feeling very singled out. And your joy demonstrates that transition is a true act of self-love. And I'm speaking to you, transgender kids, adults, and my daughter, that people are going to be afraid and intimidated. Nothing scares some people more than people who are authentically themselves. It was hard to watch from a perspective of, well, do we need this from the science perspective? But at the same time, is there compassion and empathy in this legislation? And so we just sort of watched, you know, the sponsors say, I believe, he believed that this was the most compassionate way to do this. But at the same time, I think the transgender community felt very targeted and very singled out. And this is the first time in the history of the state, President, that we've addressed this. Right. And Senator Kennedy, he is a physician, correct? And so was that sort of adding to the arguments behind this bill? Yeah. If you're going to have somebody run a bill uh, dealing with medical surgeries, then a doctor is the one who should probably do that. It gave him a little bit of cover there, right, to say these are medical procedures that I, as a doctor, may not have all the science on. The potential long-term negative outcomes cannot be ignored. We need to ask ourselves questions such as, can a child appropriately give consent? Does a child completely understand the implications of their choice? Now, I know that there are a lot of people that are pushing for this to happen. But the people that are pushing for this to happen are not those with children that it will affect. The people with children that it will affect are begging us not to do this. And so the other big philosophical question around this bill, though, was do we want the state government involved in making these medical decisions for our youth, right? Mm -hmm. Those on the transgender and advocate side of this argued that this was a medical decision. This was a, a surgery or a, an ability to take these cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers that should be between a parent and their child and the doctor. Having government come in the middle of that was something they really took issue with. But at the same time, 
the lawmakers argued that this is something that could harm minors. And they wanted to take in it, take a stand when it came to issues that affect minors and what they believed was keeping them safe. I think it's worth noting with this, um, Governor Cox and his support for this, where, you know, he's has been seen as uh, sympathetic to the cause of the LGBTQ community. And, of course, last session, you know, it, it ended on that ban for transgender athletes. And uh, and he rejected that, you know, vetoed it. They over overrode that, uh, but he he supported this bill, correct? Yeah, he did support this bill, and I think uh, what he said in his statement as he supported it was he believed this was a compassionate way to move forward because it was just p- sort of putting a pause on things. I need, I think we need to put a pause on things and just study this a little bit more. But I think from those who appreciated his veto of the athlete ban, they wanted to see a stronger political stance from him in. In this issue, Um, from Governor Cox's perspective, politically, he probably burned his veto power with that other veto. You know, he can only veto politically so many things. The Mm legislature is just going to come back and override those vetoes. And at some point, he doesn't have any more vetoes he can use, right? At some point, he has to work together with the legislature to pass bills that he thinks are good policy. So if he's just outright vetoing everything, um, it's probably not the best move politically. So uh, I think there was disappointment from some on the advocate side that he didn't take a stronger stand on this. But at the same time, this was an issue where he believed um, that there was some common ground and some compromise and some reasonableness, if that's a word, to um, this bill. Okay. I think it's a word. Is that a word? <laughs> reasonableness? Reason- yeah, sure. Reasonable- I don't know what the word is. I think is. it works. Yeah. A big talking point heading into this session was domestic violence. And part of that was because of just the awful incident that happened in Enoch, you know, uh, like right at the beginning of the year. Uh, There are other incidents involving uh, Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson and her family. There are a lot of people, a lot of victims, a lot of families that have been and suffered. And I wanted to see if we could figure out ways that we can do better. Yeah, so I think from the beginning of the session, we saw the weight of the office of Lieutenant Governor coming behind specifically one bill, and that was run by Senator Todd Weiler. And this would mandate police departments uh, to perform these lethality assessments. Beautiful girl, beautiful smile. She was only 35 years old when she was murdered. It's been five months since Kent and Shauna Maine lost their daughter Mandy to domestic violence. No, no parent aspires to come to legislature to talk about their uh, legislation on behalf of their daughter. That usually means something bad has happened. However, it also means that hopefully something good will follow. The Maines hope that good thing will be Senate Bill 117. It requires law enforcement officers to conduct a lethality assessment, an 11-question survey to assess a person's risk of being killed in a domestic violence situation. Has he ever threatened to kill you? Has he ever choked you before? Uh, Is he unemployed? Does he own a gun? Right now, bill sponsor Senator Todd Weiler says about half of Utah's police agencies use it. Law enforcement throughout the state are hearing loud and clear that it's time to start using them, and there's no more excuses. We have seen dramatic results in our small community using this program. And so you saw the weight of the office come behind this bill. I think that was significant. Um, 
But you just saw, you know, kind of this push around um, uh, we need to do more to help victims of domestic violence. I think that's a cause that no one is arguing is unworthy. But I think how and how much and what we do was kind of where you saw the argument um, play out. One question of do we mandate police to do something, right? Do we mandate that they perform these lethality assessments? Ultimately, this bill passed. So, yes. And anytime the state mandates something, a lot of people argue you can't mandate something without providing funding. Like you can't say, I'm going to require you to do this, but not provide you any resources to be able to do it. Right. So Mm -hmm. you also saw with this a fiscal note, some money behind domestic violence services, because what happens in these situations is law enforcement has to go and perform these lethality assessments. And then they're also required to get the victim to help get the victim to some domestic violence or intimate partner violence services and Because they're requiring this, there's going to be a lot more of these calls. There's going to be a lot more of these situations. And uh, the lawmaker and the lieutenant governor and those in support of this wanted to beef up those resources in order to support the amount of victims that may be coming their way. And just in general, domestic violence services are notoriously underfunded, right? Because, you know, they just there's just really good people doing really important work, but don't always get the weight of money behind them, right? A lot of nonprofits and a lot of advocacy groups doing this work. So to see some money coming from the state to support these victims, I think a lot of people got on board with. So we just saw the budget proposal, right, that was put out just on Friday. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time we're recording this, it's still, you know, they're still going to be sort of balancing the budget, but they had allotted just over $25 million toward, like, victim services, uh, which is about half of what they asked for. But I talked to the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. They're saying this is, even though it's about half of what we asked for, this is like, this is huge. We've never had this much money go towards these services. Be able to live a life free of abuse and really break that cycle. And that's the difference when you have a system that's well-funded versus just getting by. Aaron Jemison with the Domestic Violence Coalition says it's about half of what they asked for, but still triple the amount that's currently set aside to help victims of domestic violence and other crimes. Even at half, it's going to really make a difference in the lives of victims all over the state. Tell us about what they're talking about this session on abortion. Yeah, so this is the the bigger of the abortion bills that we're seeing, HB 467. It's being run by Carrie Ann Lisenby, but it hasn't passed the Senate yet as of the time of this recording. But obviously we, we know we have a conservative legislature and we know that this issue is something that um, they're pretty united on. But this bill um, closes down, well, I shouldn't say closes down, it revokes the licenses of abortion clinics. So abortion clinics can still operate, they just can't perform abortions mm. in the state. And, and abortion clinics like Planned Parenthood provide other services like contraception. HB 467 is not just bad policy, it's dangerous policy that hurts patients, providers, and Utah's reputation as a safe place to start a family. Abortion is not women's health care. No other health care on this planet takes the life of another human being. So they do other things, but this would prevent them from having licenses from doing abortions. And it would require abortions to be performed in a hospital setting, which that's where the rub is coming from a lot of physicians and a lot of people um, who say that hospitals are not set up for abortion-related care. Um, And also... 
when you go to a hospital, it's going to cost you a lot more money to get abortion services, and it may or may not be covered by insurance. And so when you can go to a clinic, a nonprofit, and get services at a very, very discounted rate, um, that forces a lot of uh, people who may be in this situation to pay astronomically rack up medical bills for um a situation that they didn't choose to be in, right? And I should say that abortions would be right now without the trigger law going into a pl- going into effect, abortions are legal in Utah up until 18 weeks. If the trigger law takes effect, then it will ban all abortions. And um, this bill, HB 467, also reiterates that after 18 weeks, those carve-outs for rape and incest um, disappear. So mm-hmm. if you're a victim of rape, you would only be able to get an abortion up to 18 weeks. If you're a victim of incest, you would only be able to get an abortion up to 18 weeks. It is absolutely disheartening to think that the legislation could take away from me my right to care for everyone. We don't want elective abortion in the state of Utah. We anticipate that that will come to an end really soon. Another hot topic, just and this is just nationally as well as locally, has been uh, voting. I know that uh, some of these bills are still up in the air um, as the time we're recording this, uh, but are there any of those that stand out to you as something that we should be talking about? Well, we did see one bill try to come through this session that would have um, allowed people to only get a mail-in ballot if they request one. Right now, we mail out Uh, ballots automatically to active registered voters. And I think the nuance in in the words I just used are really important because uh, some people argue we just blanket the state with mail-in ballots. I know I've done a lot of reporting on elections in Utah and our um, voter rolls. If you're an active registered voter, you automatically get sent a ballot. Um, Active means that you have participated in the last two elections, um, that your address and stuff is current and up to date, and we maintain those voter rolls. So um, it's kind of a misnomer to say we're just blanketing the state with mail-in ballots. Now, does that mean that no ballots get sent to the wrong people? No, that clearly happens. And clearly, with 1.6 million people in Utah, active registered voters, there's going to be some mistakes that happen, right? But by and large, we mail ballots to active registered voters. Well, requiring someone to have to say, I would like a ballot requested to me. That requires work for them to go and do that, inform their county clerks that they would indeed like a ballot instead of just sending it out. So you heard the lieutenant governor speak out about this bill because she more or less said, the system's working just fine. Are there improvements? Sure, we can make improvements. But why would we make it harder for people to access a ballot. And so that's kind of some of the broad issue that you see. Now, um, the lieutenant governor also tweeted out that there were 45 election bills this session. And in my talks with county clerks, they do average about 30 to 40 election bills per session. And the county clerks oftentimes call this death by a thousand cuts because state lawmakers are coming in and sort of nitpicking at administration processes requiring here's where you can adjudicate ballots, here's where you can't, just kind of making some of these things nuanced, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this deals with election administration and weediness that like only the county clerks really understand how, uh, whether or not that is necessary. So um, by and large, I think you just saw these election bills that kind of uh, 
tighten up the process. Some of them were necessary um, to make things uh, better, but other others of them, I think county clerks might argue that they're nitpicking and they're in, in search of a, a solution of a problem that doesn't exist. We need to make sure that as we're growing, that the infrastructure keeps up with that. You can maintain a high quality of life with more people, but you have to be intentional about it. All sides agree water conservation is also a big priority so that we can get more water to the Great Salt Lake. Of course, top of mind for all Utahns is water supply, and in particular, the Great Salt Lake. We've got to find a way to solve our water problems, but I'm optimistic. This has gotten national attention and people people just sort of calling out Utah, even mocking them, you know, just for the lack of effort as they see it um, on just addressing the Great Salt Lake and those things. Uh, some of these bills are still on the table. Uh, what what stands out to you as something that's... Yeah, so I think the biggest one that we're going to see make it through it has the weight of the Speaker of the House and the Senate President behind it, and that's a bill to create a so-called Great Salt Lake Commissioner. This is one person who would be the point person for all the agencies working on the lake. So you have, you know, 12 or 13 different environmental groups and state agencies like Department of Natural Resources and the Department of um, Agriculture and the these different departments that are all kind of doing different things, this is going to aggregate it under one person. This person is also going to be in charge of this Great Salt Lake Trust that we created last year, hmm. which creates a public-private partnership in order to manage some of this money that's going to the lake. Um, and so um, I think... On its face, it will do good things to have a point person, right? But there was a group that pushed really hard uh, talking about its quote-unquote shadowy uh, lines on uh, public records requests. Um, This group, the Utah Rivers Council, was pushing back saying that this commissioner could kind of hide some of their – some of this money um, and not be subject to public records requests. Um, The sponsor pushed back on that, saying that it only dealt with sensitive matters. If we're involved in a lawsuit, we don't want states knowing our legal strategy, if this information was sensitive, if if developers were going to drive up water rates because they knew how much we were selling water rights for, right? They could drive up the prices in certain ways. So um, the sponsor argued, once this information was no longer sensitive, then it could be released to the public. But I think the Utah Rivers Council um, was just concerned that they even said this person could buy a car dealership with state funds and we'd have no idea till after the fact. So mm-hmm. they're very concerned about diversions from the lake, rightfully so. I think a lot of people are concerned about that. They just argued these uh, lines in it about transparency wouldn't allow this person to be as forthcoming and as public with the information as they needed to be. Um, but I think we'll see because this has the the weight of the offices, the leadership offices behind it. Um, you will see this get through and we'll have a czarb, if you will, a point person on the Great Salt Lake. Uh, this person will be selected by the governor with consent from the Senate. I don't know if that means they have to vote to approve them or if they just hmm. the Senate president has to say thumbs up, you're good to go. Um But nonetheless, this person will be appointed by state leadership. And, um, you know, how Speaker Brad Wilson was asked in one of our media availabilities, will this get more water to the lake? And he said he believes so um, because it allows this person to coordinate with all these agencies what is actually happening with flows, with the birds, with the brine shrimp, with the agriculture, with the watering. Right. It allows this person to kind of oversee everything. 
So that's the major move that I think lawmakers are taking this year. You also have kind of some of those ancillary um, water bills that are dealing with conservation. We're seeing the uh, state give more money to um, their statewide flip the strip program, if you will, allowing you to have more water-wise landscaping. We're also seeing a lot of funding coming towards agriculture optimization. That's one big piece that is really needed here is what's not happening or what I should say what it feels like isn't happening from some critics of the legislature is that none of these bills are getting water into the lake, right? It's a lot Mm. of talk. It's a lot of, yeah, we need to conserve. Yeah, we need to create a point person. Yeah, we need to do this and give money to the lake. But it's not actually increasing the flows into the lake. The the rivers that flow into the Great Salt Lake are having water taken from them before the water gets to the lake because people use that water for their everyday needs. And agriculture uses that water for growing crops in Utah. Now, there's a balance of how do we make sure we don't kill kill off all of our agriculture that makes the state money and our farmers who need that to survive um, and us who eat some of those products, right? We don't want to just take all the water from the farmers. But it is also, it is also true that agriculture uses about 60 to 70% of the state's water. So you saw a lot of money going towards agriculture optimization. This is a program that was started years ago so farmers can get up to date with their watering technologies to hopefully conserve more water. How do you see this session wrapping up? And are there other bills that you're really looking forward to uh, watching this week? Well, yeah, the last week of the session turns into this like mad dash of bills being Mm. run. There are over almost 1,400 bills that have been run this session, and about 900 of those actually have numbers to them, meaning they have text to them and could potentially be heard. Now, right now, we're at about Bill 500. If you look at the bill numbers as they're coming out, you can see where we're at. So we have about 500 new bills that are working their way through the legislature and another 300 that have yet to be heard. So if we hear another 300 bills this week, it's going to, my head's going to explode. But (laughs) all of that, just to say we've been working at a breakneck pace. I think some of the other overarching themes of this session, we saw social media bills go through the legislature, right? And that one has yet to pass where we are going to prohibit uh, minors from using social media without parental consent. We know that social media companies know about the consequences their platforms and algorithms are having on mental well-being, and still they do nothing. And this was a big talker in terms of can we can we do this, right? And I think yeah. that's one of the overarching themes that you're seeing in the legislature is how much and when do we want the state government to step in between families and their children, right? You could make the argument that whether or not my teen uses social media is up to me as the parent, right? But the state argues social media is harmful to minors. And a lot of people agree that there are harms that come from social media. And we have other things that we do to protect minors and protect people in Utah that you could argue, quote unquote, take away their freedoms, right? Or that is the government stepping in. We require seatbelts. We have alcohol laws. We don't allow minors to drink alcohol or view pornography, right? So that's some of the argument there. is there are areas where parents need tools to help their kids. And social media is an area where we saw this. Um, But then on the transgender-related bill, 
we're seeing the state step in on a medical decision. Is that where we want the government stepping in? between parents and families. Uh, We also have several bills dealing with education and specifically diversity, equity, and inclusion in both public education and higher education. And I've heard from several, uh, even members of the State Board of Education, who feel like the legislature is nitpicking at what teachers can and can't teach. Hmm. Now, on the opposite side of that, there is some belief that um, if you, that, that quote unquote diversity, equity and inclusion has become sort of like a political tool to allow certain people to push an agenda. And so it's not that they don't want diversity, diversity, equity and inclusion. It's that that's being used as a tool to push an agenda that shouldn't be pushed in schools. School should just be about teaching. Right. So um, but you have the education community really worried and you have the legislature kind of trying to. Uh, clamp down on some of the things that they feel like should and should not be taught in schools. And teachers are feeling a little bit uneasy on that. And the education community is feeling a little bit uneasy about that. The last thing I'll say in terms of what we might see this week has to do with taxes. Because we are worried about a slowdown in the economy. And if we can help their budgets by giving them more money in their pocket, that's a good thing. We have yet to approve a major tax bill that would lower your income tax and make some other targeted cuts towards people on Social Security and those who benefit from an earned income tax credit. Uh, We also have the food sales tax that may come off, but this is contingent on uh, a constitutional amendment change and whether or not we free up the income tax from being earmarked to education. Now, there is a big... Uh, back and forth with the education community and lawmakers on what's going to be amended in the Utah Constitution. The bill as it's proposed right now would just get rid of the earmark on education. That has a lot of of people in education worried that lawmakers are just going to be given free reign to the income tax fund and education is not going to get funded. Now, in fairness, the lawmakers have vowed that education will be funded. And we've seen some of those uh, funding mechanisms being put in the state's budget. But so what we're seeing now is a change that that language uh, to amend the Constitution might look a little bit different. So not just flat out removing it, but funding education and funding it for growth first, as well as some other social services. And then whatever's left over can be used for uh, the rest of the state's needs if they need it. Now, that language hasn't been solidified and those bills haven't passed yet. So all of this is still up in the air. But those are some of the big things I'm watching for in the last week of the session. Just a few things. Just a few things (laughs) that really impact your life. (laughs) The last day of the session is March 3rd. We'll continue covering the bills, the impact, the fallout after the session ends on KSL TV and KSL News Radio. That does it for us this week on KSL Plus. I'm Matt Rascone. I'll see you again next week. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. 
In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.